Let's open God's Word this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's second epistle to the church at Corinth, the second chapter. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you whether ye be obedient in all things. For to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Thus far we read God's word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 31. This can be found in the back of our blue songbooks on page 18. After the songs, there's a section of doctrinal standards, page 18 in the back of our songbooks. It's the practice of our congregation to use this Heidelberg Catechism as a teaching tool to guide us into the truth of all the key doctrines that are contained in God's Word. And we're up to Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the Kingdom of Heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the Kingdom of Heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the Gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers, and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God in eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them, both in this and in the life to come. 
How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who are under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God Himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and His church. Congregation, what is your response to the Word of God when it comes to you? What is your response when God's Word comes to you through the preaching and exposes some sin that is a part of your life? What is your response? When a loved one comes to you and asks if you would be willing to sit down and talk with them for a while and drawing from Scripture, they admonish you concerning some sin in your life. Do we give our ear to the preaching or to that brotherly admonition? Or do we close our ears and turn them away? Do we embrace that Word of God when it comes to us? Or do we stiff-arm it, trying to push it away? What is our response to God's Word when it comes to us through whatever channel it may come to us by? It's a question that we face this evening as we consider Lord's Day 31 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 31 gives us instruction concerning the keys of the kingdom. That's evident from the opening question of the Lord's Day. What are the keys of the kingdom? And the Catechism brings this up because in the previous question and answer, there was a, just a reference, a, a mention to the keys of the kingdom with regards to admittance to the Lord's Supper At the end of question in answer 82, we read this, that it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And now the catechism, having mentioned the keys in the previous Lord's Day, has an entire Lord's Day devoted to that subject. Asking, well, what are these keys of the kingdom and how do they work? How do they function? And that's really the heart of this Lord's Day that we consider this evening. And in considering this Lord's Day, we are going to take a slightly different approach than what we've done in the past when I've preached on this Lord's Day. In the past, I've largely focused on the exercise of the keys. That is, looking at the keys of the kingdom from the perspective of the church and her calling to make use of the keys This evening, we look at this same Lord's Day more from the perspective of each one of us, every single individual sitting in the pew, and how we respond to these keys of the kingdom. That is, whether we receive them by faith, or whether we reject them in unbelief. That is, we face the question, what is our response to God's Word when it comes to us. So our theme for tonight's sermon is our response to the preaching and Christian discipline. First, we will see there are two keys. Second, we'll look at the two responses. And then third, at the two outcomes. Our response to the preaching and Christian discipline. Two keys, two responses, and two outcomes. This Lord's Day, as I've indicated, 
gives instruction concerning the keys of the kingdom. And for the Heidelberg Catechism to bring up the keys of the kingdom is simply for the Catechism to give us instruction concerning the very language of Scripture itself because Christ Himself explicitly spoke of these keys of the kingdom. He did that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, where speaking to His disciples, He said, "...and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And then he adds this explanation, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So an explicit reference to these keys of the kingdom and a mention that they are used to, to loose and to bind. And importantly, this is not the only passage of Scripture that uses that same language. There are two other New Testament passages, both in the Gospels, that use very similar language. And even though they do not mention by name the keys of the kingdom, it's evident from the parallel language that they're talking about the same thing. The first is Matthew 18, verse 18, where Christ says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So almost identical language to Matthew 16, verse 19. And then a slightly Different set of language is found in John 20, verse 23. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So there's these passages that speak of the keys of the kingdom. And the question for us is, what is Jesus teaching us here? What is the idea of these keys of the kingdom? To get to the keys, we first have to make sure we understand what He means by kingdom. And the kingdom here is the kingdom of heaven, Christ's own spiritual kingdom, of which He is the King and His blood-bought people are the citizens. And the kingdom is really His, His rule over the citizens of this kingdom. And we understand that to be the idea in light of what Jesus was talking about when he, in the context of when He brought up the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16, verse 19 is the passage we read. In verse 18, Jesus Christ is talking about building the church upon the confession of Simon Peter and how the, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. And what that teaches us is that the church is the visible manifestation of this spiritual heavenly kingdom as it's found on this earth. And to be a citizen of the kingdom is to be a member of the church Invisible, that is a member of the elect body of Christ. That's the kingdom. And Christ has designated certain keys to the kingdom. And these keys are used for opening and shutting the kingdom. That's the language that's found in answer 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. And the catechism is simply explaining to us this idea of the keys. And it's, it's drawing from the clear implication of this figure that Christ uses. Keys are what you use to lock and to unlock something, to open and to shut something so that that's how they're used in this spiritual kingdom. And specifically... The kingdom is opened when our sins are forgiven. And we say that when we take those various passages that we already read and put them all together. Because Christ speaks of a binding and a loosing. And if we ask, what is being bound and what's being loosed? Well, the passage in John 20, verse 23, gives us the explanation. There we read, and whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So that when the other passages speak of binding and loosing, we understand the binding and loosing of sin. So that to put it very simply, this kingdom of heaven is opened when our sins are remitted. That is, they're loosed, loosened from us. The, the tie is cut. But the kingdom is shut when those sins remain bound, when they're still attached to us, when they're retained. And Christ is teaching us 
there are various keys that are used as tools, as instruments for this very thing. And what's so striking is that he's actually given these keys to his church. That's what he's saying in Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that certainly implies that they belong to Jesus Christ in the first place. They're His possession. They're His to give. And really, He never completely relinquishes ownership of them. But yet, He does entrust them to His church. And I say to His church because this Word comes to all of the disciples. It's true that in Matthew 16, He's talking directly to Simon Peter. The pronouns in Matthew 16 are singular. But in the other two passages, Matthew 18 and John 20, the pronouns are plural. It's not just to Peter, but it's to all of the disciples who were the, the representatives of the church, the, the leaders of the church in that day. So that the keys are being given to the church of Jesus Christ. But now what are these keys? Well, he speaks of keys, plural, so we know there's at least two of them. And on the basis of Scripture, we believe the keys are the preaching of the Gospel and Christian discipline. That's what the Catechism teaches us in question and answer 83. What are the keys of the Kingdom of Heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. And we say that in light of the context of these various passages that speak of the keys of the kingdom or the, the loosing and the binding and the remitting and retaining of sin. In John chapter 20, the context is that Jesus is sending out His disciples. He's conferred upon them the Holy Spirit. Now He's sending them out to testify of His resurrection. This is taking place after His resurrection so that they're going to go speak of His resurrection. That is, they are being sent out to preach. And it's in that context that He speaks of the remitting and the retaining of sin. So that preaching, therefore, is one of the keys. And we deduce that Christian discipline is the other in light of the context in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is that classic passage that outlines the various steps of Christian discipline. It outlines the steps that we are to take when we are addressing sin in the, li in the life of a fellow Christian. And then it's, in that, it's at the end of that passage that he speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven again so that we understand that Christian discipline is the other key. And this identification of the keys is really confirmed by the whole of the New Testament. For you see, when we study the New Testament, whether the history that's recorded in Acts or the New Testament epistles, we would expect that the church is going to use these keys. Christ gave the keys to the disciples and thus to the church as a whole. And therefore, when we read the subsequent history, it stands to reason that we're going to find the, the church Making use of them. So what do we see the church doing? On the one hand, we see the church preaching. In Acts chapter 2, just after the Spirit has been poured out, what does Simon Peter stand up and do? He preaches. And that's what we see again and again throughout the book of Acts. The apostles and others preaching the Gospel to others. They were making use of one of the keys that Christ gave to them. But we also see the New Testament church exercising Christian discipline. And that comes out in Paul's epistles especially. In a number of them, he gives instruction concerning Christian discipline, including in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is really the, the backdrop to the chapter that we read. We'll explain that more later on in the sermon. But when Paul wrote his first epistle to the church at Corinth, he did so in part to address the fact that there was a man who was a member in good standing in the church who was walking in Sin. The sin of incest. And the church was allowing this. So Paul called for the church to put that man outside of the church. That is to exercise the key of Christian discipline. So that again, the point is, we see the church using the keys that have been given to her so that this confirms the identification of 
the keys of the kingdom. It's the preaching of the gospel and the exercise of Christian discipline. So we've explained what are the keys, but a part of Lord's Day 31 is asking, well, how do they work? How do they function? That's really what both 84, questions 84 and 85 are asking. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the gospel? And then the second question is, how is it opened and shut by Christian discipline? How do they work? How do they open and shut the kingdom? Well, what they have in common is that both of them at their heart involve an explanation and an application of the Word of God to the sinner. Both of them proclaim the same fundamental message. There is salvation in Christ alone. And if you are outside of Christ, that is, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you stand exposed to the wrath of God. That's the message of both. That is, both of them proclaim both the law and the Gospel. Both of them remind us of God's perfect standard and what we deserve as sinners who fall short of it. But both of them also present the good news of the Gospel, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's see that for both of them. With the preaching, it's more obvious because the preaching is the official proclamation of God's Word by an ordained minister in the church of Jesus Christ. It's an exposition of and an application of God's Word to the church. And the preaching proclaims that fundamental message. There's salvation in Jesus Christ alone. The preaching includes an explanation of the law, So that included in the preaching are the various commands that are found in Scripture that remind us of how we are to live, but ultimately show us that we fall so far short. The the law exposes our sinfulness. It, It shows us our need for Jesus Christ. And thus the preaching also includes and really focuses on the Gospel. The the law is preached in the service of the preaching of the Gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came into this world and endured the the very punishment that we deserve as lawbreakers. And that Christ did more than that. Christ fulfilled the law for us. He, He kept the law on our behalf. That's the good news. So that there's salvation in Him. That's the message of the preaching. And really, Christ Himself is the one bringing that word through preaching. That is, through preaching by an ordained servant that is faithful to the Word of God. And we say that on the basis of Scripture. For example, in a passage like John 10, verse 27, we read this. Jesus saying to the unbelieving Pharisees, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Notice that. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice. And He's not just talking about the sheep who were right there, who were alive during His earthly ministry, but all of His sheep. And if we ask, how can all of His sheep hear His voice? The explanation is through the preaching. We find this same thing in a passage like Ephesians 4, verses 20 and 21, where Paul writes, but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul, speaking to the church at Ephesus, says, you've heard Christ. You've you've learned Christ. You've been taught by Christ. And what a striking thing to say because he's writing many years after these people were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And we understand that Jesus never made it all the way to Ephesus. So how did they hear Christ? Through the preaching of the Gospel. So the preaching proclaims this message and Christ Himself speaks through it. And that same fundamental message is really the same message of, that's brought in Christian discipline. Certainly Christian discipline is distinct. It's different from the preaching. It, it, it works slightly differently. Because in Christian discipline, 
The word is coming not generally to all who gather on a Sunday to sit under the preaching, but it's being brought to an individual. To an individual, a Christian, who's ensnared in some sin. Catechism in question and answer 85 says this, when according to the command of Christ, those who are under the name of Christians, so we're talking about those who are professing believers, maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith. Those are the objects of Christian discipline. So it's not a general word, but a very specific word. And a word that's brought not from the pulpit by an ordained minister, but by the members of the body. Including perhaps the elders of the church. But though there are distinctions, it's still the same fundamental message. The Word of God that comes to us through Christian discipline, that is through brotherly admonishments, is that there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And if you refuse Him, if you reject Him, you stand exposed to the wrath of God. And that's the message throughout and really what changes in Christian discipline is the One bringing the Word to us. It starts with that Word coming to us by an individual. That's first. And that in light of what Scripture itself teaches us. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. So some member of the church notices that we are caught in some sin. And in Christian love, comes to us and says, brother or sister, I've noticed that you seem to be drifting. You seem to be going down a a wrong and dangerous path and I'm concerned about you and I want to read God's Word with you. That's where Christian discipline starts with the Word of God being brought to us by an individual. Bringing the law because it's the law that's God's standard that helps us to see our error, to, to show us that we do indeed fall short, that our, our life is not in harmony with how God would have us to live, but then also bringing the gospel. That there is forgiveness. Holding up the, the mercy of God as the, that which encourages us and really brings us to repentance. So the Word of God comes first by an individual. But if there's still no repentance, then secondly, it becomes by many. That is, by a group. That is, two or three. And that's the biblical pattern according to what Christ taught us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. But if he will not hear thee when you go privately, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word of God may be established. So the first brotherly admonitions were rejected and so now the brotherly admission admissions are coming from a, a group but it's still the same fundamental message and that message remains the same even if and when the elders get involved because that's the the third aspect the third step first by individuals then by two or three and then by the elders because Christ taught us in Matthew 18 verse 17 if he shall neglect to hear them tell it to the church And the church there is to be understood as the leaders of the church, the the representatives of the church. And the catechism points us in that direction when it says in answer 85 that, I'll just start from the beginning, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christian discipline, of Christians, maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been brotherly admonished, there's the first and second steps, announce their errors and wicked course of life are complained of to the church. And now the catechism adds this, or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church. And it's not saying these are the two different options. You can broadcast it to the the whole congregation or you can tell it to those appointed by the church. But it's saying this is what is meant by the church. That's what that second line, that second phrase is saying. Church is a reference to the office bearers of the church, the leaders in the church, tell it to them so that they then 
can bring that same message to the wayward sinner. The message that includes bringing the law. This is God's standard. And when we look at your life, it doesn't meet that standard and you don't seem to be that bothered by this. You, you seem perfectly content to, to go on in your sin. The elders bring that message, but they also bring the gospel. Repent and believe. Because there is forgiveness to be found. Look to Christ. That's the message that's brought. And now the word is being brought by the elders so that it has a level of authority added to it. Certainly God's word brought by an individual. That word by itself is an authority. But now when it's the elders bringing it, there's the added authority of the the office that they hold. They are the official representatives of Christ, His visible representatives here on this earth. So first, the Word of God comes by individuals, then by a group of two or three, then by elders, and then if there's still no repentance, then by the entire congregation. Because if there's no repentance, eventually this sin gets announced. First, without the name. And everyone's encouraged to pray. But then if there's still no repentance, then it's with the name. It's announced publicly. So and so, mentioned by name, is the one who's been sinning against this commandment. And the purpose is so that the Word of God can be brought not just by an individual, not by a group of two or three, not just by the elders, but the whole congregation is now involved. And the whole congregation is still bringing the same fundamental message. Their salvation in Christ alone. Turn to Him. Believe in Him. And then if there's still no repentance, if there's still no faith, then that Word of God comes by the public sentence of the church when that individual is excommunicated, that is officially put out of the church. That excommunication is a declaration. It's a statement. You are outside of the kingdom of heaven. You are not a citizen of Christ's spiritual kingdom. And therefore, because you are outside of His kingdom, you stand exposed to the wrath of God. That's the message of the law. But at the very same time, the way for them to return remains open. The good news that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that remains unchanged so that even when there is an excommunication in the the public sentence, you are outside of the kingdom, there's still the good news of the Gospel that's proclaimed that there is forgiveness to be found in Christ. So that you see throughout the whole process, it's the same fundamental message. The same message that's found in the preaching. Only it's being brought in a different way to a specific individual on account of his or her sin. So there are these two different channels whereby God's Word can come to us. There's the preaching. And then there are the brotherly admonitions that are a part of the overall process of Christian discipline. How are you going to respond to that word? That's what we want to see. That's what we want to look at next. That there are really only two responses. For we can respond either by receiving that Word or by rejecting that Word. We can respond by faith or in unbelief. We can respond with our hearts open to that Word of God coming to us or we can respond with our hearts hardened by that Word. And we see that those are the two different responses when we examine God's Word. Because in God's Word, we see the two keys being used. We see the preaching of the Gospel and we see the exercise of Christian discipline. And when we read God's Word, we we see both of these responses. 
And often we see them at the very same time or in very similar circumstances. We see this in Paul's ministry. For example, when he was on the mission field in Acts chapter 13, we see both responses. He's preaching in Antioch and in Chapter 13, verse 45, we read this, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. So there were some who rejected the Gospel, but there were others who believed it. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Two responses. Paul saw two different responses when he brought brotherly admonitions. For example, he admonished Peter. Simon Peter, when he was conducting himself in such a way that by his behavior he was compromising the gospel of justification by faith alone. And Paul withstood him publicly face to face. He he pointed out Peter's sin to him. And we understand that Simon Peter repented. That he received the word the way he was supposed to. But that did not always happen when Paul brought the word. For he no doubt brought the word to men like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Men mentioned in 1 Timothy who made shipwreck concerning the faith. They would not hear Paul. So that eventually Paul says that he delivered them unto Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. And we can be sure that came only after He had repeatedly brought the Word, but they had refused to hear it. Two responses. We see this in Simon Peter's preaching. When he preached at Pentecost, there were some who were cut to the heart. Who when they heard about Christ and Him crucified, they they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter was able to tell them, repent and believe. And Many believed. Many were added to the church. But yet, as Simon Peter continues to preach, that Word of God comes to the religious leaders of that day and they reject it so much so that they take Him and they put Him in prison. They, they beat Him. They tell Him, stop preaching the Gospel. Two responses. And this was true not just of Paul and not just of Simon Peter, but of Jesus' own ministry. There were many who believed. Who looked to Him for salvation, but there were many who rejected His Gospel. Who despised it. And many who sought to kill Him because of His preaching. Two responses. And this is not just a a New Testament phenomenon, but if we go back into the Old Testament, we could find similar examples. We see this when God's Word would come through the prophets to various kings. All throughout the history of Israel and Judah, God's Word is coming to these different kings and most of them want nothing to do with that Word. They reject it and they would even imprison the prophets who brought them that Word. But there was also a prophet named Nathan who brought God's Word to a king no less powerful, in fact more powerful than almost all the rest and that king named David when he heard the brotherly admonition, confessed his sin. And he sought forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. Two different responses. And there are these two responses because this is God's own purpose. With the Word being brought. And we say that in light of the passage that we read this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, especially verses 15 and 16, that God has, that all of this happens according to God's own purpose with the word. Verse 15 says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, and them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. Paul speaks collectively of a group for we. And if we back up to the opening chapter and verse, we recognize that he's talking about himself and Timothy. And in light of the immediate context, he may well have in mind Titus as well. And what lumps all these men together is that they're preachers of the Gospel. So that he's 
talking about preachers and bringing the Word. We. That's the subject here. And in their work, they are unto God, says verse 15, a sweet savor of Christ. That is, a pleasant aroma. A sweet fragrance. So that when we preach Christ and Him crucified unto God, that's pleasing unto Him. Okay, they're not preaching, the word's not directed to God, but God's view of their preaching is that He's pleased with it. It's a sweet savor unto Him. And that's true, even though this has two different effects, two different, yeah, two different effects. And we see that in verse 16. Paul says, to the one, we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. On the one hand, we and our preaching is a savor of death unto death. That is, for some, our preaching smells of death. It stinks of death. It's repulsive to them. They plug their noses. They, they turn away. They want nothing to do with Him. It reeks when we speak of Christ and Him crucified as the only way whereby a man can be saved. And for them, it leads to death. He says, it's to the one, we are a savor of death. It, it smells like death to them. And then he adds, unto death, that, it, that is, it leads to death for them. Because when they're confronted with this message that there's salvation in Christ alone, they reject it. Their hearts are hardened. They hate that Word of God and that then, for them, leads to death. But that's not the only effect. There's the positive effect. Because he goes on to say, and to the other, the savor of life unto life. That is, for some, this Gospel preaching, it it smells to them of life. It's a pleasant aroma to them too. They hear the good news. And it warms their hearts. They're, they're drawn to it powerfully in a way they can't even explain themselves. It smells good to them. And thus it also leads to life. It's a savor of life unto life. That is, it's used as a means whereby they're brought to faith. For them, it is the power of God unto salvation so that they're brought unto eternal life by means of the preaching. Two different effects. And this according to God's own purpose. That's the point being made. Not just that there happens to be these two outcomes, these two results, but that God designed it this way, that this is what He's intending through the preaching and by implication through Christian discipline. Because in all of eternity, God chose some to be His elect people. While at the same time passing over others, leaving them in their sin and unbelief. And by means of the preaching, God is realizing that eternal plan so that the elect are brought to saving faith and others are hardened and left without excuse. And all of this underscores the main point we have made thus far in this second point. There are two responses to the Word of God that comes to us, whether it be through preaching or whether it be through Christian discipline. There's Receiving it or rejecting it? Responding by faith or responding in unbelief? How will you respond? How do I respond? How do we respond? when the preaching addresses some sin that's found broadly in the congregation, is our response, well, I sure hope so-and-so is listening because she really needs to hear it. 
What about when the preaching sets forth Christ in all of His glory, in all of His beauty? Is our response and internal yawn and the thinking, I've heard this all before, why can't the preacher tell us something new? What about when this preaching addresses some sin and calls the congregation to repent? Do we say in our heart, well, maybe next week. Maybe next month. But for now, I kind of like this and I want to hold on to it. I understand that's wrong. And I know I can't continue to hold on to this sin indefinitely forever, but just a little bit longer. And then tomorrow or next week, then I'll repent. What is our response to God's Word that comes to us through the preaching? And understand, this is a question for everyone here, believer and unbeliever. Certainly, on the foreground in the Heidelberg Catechism is the fact that you can respond by faith or by unbelief, and that that's often rooted in whether an individual has faith or does not have faith. But it's not as though those of us who are believers are exempted from this application that's being made right now in the sermon. Because every believer still has within their heart unbelief. So that even the the elect, regenerated, believing child of God at times does not respond by faith. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond when God's Word comes to us through the preaching? But we also have to ask the same question concerning Christian discipline. How are we going to respond when that brother or sister in Christ comes to us and says, I'd like to sit down and talk with you for a while and brings us the Word and shows us our sin? Are we going to become defensive? Immediately activate that inner lawyer and begin making excuses? You got it all wrong? Or are we going to deflect? Try to turn the tables and say, well, what about your sins? What about this and that in your life? Are we going to shift blame? Well, you're right. Yes, this sin is a part of my life, but it's only because of the way this other person is treating me. What else would you expect in light of the circumstances and how hard it is for me? What about when the elders become involved? And they're trying to contact us. We're going to ignore their phone calls, their text messages, their emails. Try to avoid making eye contact them on a Sunday when we see them at church. How are we going to respond if and when, and may God graciously forbid this, keep this from happening, but if and when we are put under Christian discipline? Are we going to immediately withdraw our church membership, bolt from the congregation? Understand, that does not remove the discipline. It does not just make it vanish, go away. It's still there. And if someone leaves under discipline, they are leaving as one who is outside of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How are we going to respond to God's Word that when it comes to us in the form of a brotherly admonition? If this happens, really, we should not be surprised by it, you know. And that because of the very character of sin. Sin is deceitful. So that most often we are blind to our own sinfulness. And that means we really need a Nathan. We really need a a Paul or some other Christian in the church to 
to address sin when they see it in us because too often we're blind to our own sin. And what is more, when someone comes to us in this way, should we not thank that person? Think of the tremendous love in that person's heart who has enough concern about my soul to overcome the hurdle of having to approach a very difficult subject who's perhaps worried about how that word is going to be received, but yet came anyway to speak to me out of love and concern for my own soul. We should rejoice. Someone loves me that much. But no, it's not just the individual, is it? Because whatever love is in the the heart of that individual who brings us the Word, it's but a dim reflection of the far greater love of Jesus Christ. Whether God's Word comes to us in the preaching or through the brotherly admonitions of Christian discipline, we need to see standing behind both our compassionate shepherd who pursues after His wayward sheep, who seeks those who are lost. It's Christ at work in the lives of His sheep. That's true in the preaching. We established earlier that the preaching is not only about Christ. Christ is not only the message of the preaching, but that Christ speaks through the preaching so that the the preacher who's an ordained servant who's faithful to the Word of God is really the mouthpiece of Christ. So that it's Christ speaking to His sheep, beckoning them to turn away from their sin, to believe in Him. And the same applies to that whole process of Christian discipline because it's Christ at work by His Spirit in the hearts of the body in the hearts of the other members of the church. He put that in them. He worked in them the willingness to come and speak to me when I was walking in a way of sin. So that either way, whatever form the Word of God comes to us, we need to see Christ's own compassionate care for His wayward sheep. And that then is encouragement to respond not in unbelief, but by faith. Not rejecting the Word of God, but receiving it. Receiving it so that God's kingdom might be opened to us so that our sins might be forgiven because Understand, there are only two outcomes. There are two keys. There are two different responses. And there are two different outcomes that correlate to the two different responses. The kingdom is either shut or it's opened. The kingdom is shut. It's closed to all those who will not repent and believe. That is, those who will not hear the Word of God when it's preached. So that when the law comes to them through the preaching, they, they refuse to acknowledge their sins so that when the Gospel is proclaimed through the preaching and Christ crucified is set forth, they view Him as foolishness or as a stumbling block. They reject Jesus Christ. And they reject that Word when it comes to them through the brotherly admonitions of Christian discipline so that that Word falls on deaf ears. Really, more accurately, it falls on a hard heart. The Word does not penetrate. There's no repentance. There are some who will respond in unbelief. And for them, the kingdom is shut. It's closed. Not that 
the preaching or the brotherly admonition is the thing that puts them outside of the kingdom, but it's the word that testifies to them, that declares to them that they are already outside of the kingdom. That's the point for someone who does not believe. Well, that person is not a citizen of the kingdom. Their sins are not forgiven. And when the Word of God comes and says, there's salvation in Christ alone, the implication of that message is that if you do not believe in Him, you are outside of the kingdom. It's being declared to them. And thus they are being reminded, you stand exposed to the awful wrath of God. That is, the path you are on is the one that ends in death. Remember, 2 Corinthians 2.16, it's a savor of death unto death. That's where unbelief leads. That's the outcome. For those who will not believe in Jesus Christ. But now the good news is that the kingdom is open to all those who do believe. Who look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And having the kingdom open, understand that means life. Because as we were taught in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, it's a savor of life unto life, unto everlasting life. A life that's given to us already now in this life, but a life that's perfected in the life to come. And the wonder of it is that it's given to us so freely. Because understand, having the kingdom open to you is not a matter of, well, you've got to do enough to get in. It's not that you've got to perform enough works. You have to get to this threshold of holiness and, and then the doors are open. But it's a matter of believing in Jesus Christ and receiving life as a free gift on the basis of His merits. That's the point the catechism is making. The catechism is so helpful, so clear. Question and answer 84. How is the kingdom of God opened and shut by the preaching of the Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the Gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. It's not about what I have to do to get into the kingdom. It's about what Christ has done for me. And then believing that by faith. There's forgiveness in Him. And there's forgiveness for even the very worst of sins that perhaps you held on to for some time. That's the context in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses eight and 7 and 8, we read of this, this man. Verse 7 says, well, back up to verse 6, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise he ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. And if we ask what's going on here, who, who is this individual that Paul's writing about? It's the man that he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was ensnared in the sin of incest. Whom the church put out and God used that to show him his sin. To break his hard heart. And to bring him to repentance. That man's sins were forgiven. A man who walked openly in a sin that even the wicked world deems as something awful, something gross. There's forgiveness for your sin too. 
whatever it may be. So that the message that's embedded into this Lord's Day and to all the passages that speak of the keys of the kingdom is that the kingdom of heaven is open to whosoever believeth. And may God be pleased to use that Gospel promise either to work faith in those who do not have it or to strengthen the faith of those who do so that our response to God's Word is not that we reject it. But instead, by faith we receive it. May God so work in our hearts. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for the good news of the Gospel. And we pray that Thou will apply it unto our hearts and cause us to look to Jesus Christ in whom alone there is forgiveness. Hear our prayer for His sake. Amen.